Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Keys to the City with Anthony Weiner. Welcome to Keys to the City, Episode 4, a podcast about the problems facing New York City and the enduring power of ideas. I'm Anthony Weiner. From existential threats to pet peeves, each week together we'll resist the temptation to just curse the darkness. Instead, we'll try to light a candle by bringing to light some things that have worked before or new ways to get things done. So if you're one of those people that utters, you know, there ought to be a law, or if I were king for a day, here are the things I do, this is the podcast for you. And as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, sometimes this is going to be about big issues, existential ones like the environment or crime, and sometimes they're going to be about little pet peeves. This one is kind of somewhere in the middle, and it is something that we all experience every day walking in the streets of the city, particularly in Manhattan. And it is the rising number, even miles worth, of scaffolding that we encounter as we walk down the street. These scaffolding or construction sheds, however you want to describe them, they loom over us very often from block to block, particularly Manhattan, but this is an outer borough phenomenon as well. If it seems like there are more of them, well, you're not wrong. There are about three times as many as there were just 20 years ago. About 9,000 of these sheds, according to the Office of Management and Budget. Now, while the intuitive thing to say is, well, okay, these sheds are above us because there's construction going on overhead, and we want to be made safe from that, from anything falling, that's just the very tip of the iceberg. What really winds up coming into play is that these are the regulations that came into place over time, frequently because of dramatic stories that we read about in the newspapers, and because of regulations and laws and, frankly, a lot of development in the city, the scaffoldings have grown more and more and more and seem to be taking off. Now, I don't have an idea from Keys to the City that goes with this, but I really should have. As I've described before, the name of this podcast, Keys to the City, came from two books of ideas that I wrote when I was a city councilman, a congressman, and just as a citizen. These are ideas that came to me. I compiled them all when I ran for mayor in 2005 and then again in 2013. And these are things that I've just picked up over the course of time. Sometimes they were my own ideas. Sometimes they're ideas that I borrowed from generous constituents or think tank people. But as it turned out, this was one that came to me in 2003 when I did a study based on my own district. And I looked around, focusing only on public schools. And I looked at how many scaffolds were around public schools. And if you live in a neighborhood that has a public school, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of them around those. And as it turned out that the construction work that was necessary on those buildings we couldn't afford, 
But what we could afford was about $12,000 a month to keep the scaffolding up. And those scaffoldings increased and increased and increased. And now here we are almost 20 years later, and the problem hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. So where did it all begin? Well, it all began, frankly, like a lot of things do in the city. There was a rather high-profile instance where something fell on someone, and it got a lot of attention. And what wound up happening is a group of regulations went into effect called Local Law 10. And they required um, an extensive regimen of inspections that had to be done. We're going to be hearing from someone after the break who's actually studied this and written about it extensively to give us a little bit more insight into it. But why is this a problem? Well, we understand that when we walk down the block and we encounter one of these scaffolds, well, one thing we're going to lose is any kind of sunlight above. And that creates these caverns that are frequently the place that garbage gets dumped. People who don't have anywhere else to go frequently seek refuge under those scaffolding, make it at least appear to be unsafe. And also, frankly, they're frequently not safe themselves. A lot of these scaffolds that are built have uh, violations of the building codes themselves. When Tom DiNapoli, the controller of the state, did a survey of 74 of them, he found that 45% of them had safety violations. That's a total of 47 safety violations. These are violations that could be anything from exposed brick, exposed screws or bolts, or just other ways that they were themselves unsafe. But the other problem that that is encountered here is it completely changes the streetscape that we find in ways that often are detrimental not only to that building, not only to the neighborhood, but to the neighbors of these buildings. Part of the rules of these scaffoldings is they have to extend 20 feet beyond the boundary line of the building. So my brother Jason, who I've described on the radio show that I do on the weekend called The Middle that's on every Saturday between 2 and 3, I've also talked about it when I'm on with Curtis on Left versus Right, which follows that at 3 o'clock. My brother Jason, he is a restaurateur. He's a chef. I frequently tell people that he's the talented member of the Wiener family. He'll survive because he's got that skill. He had a restaurant on Fifth Avenue and I think 27th Street, but not right on the corner. The building on the corner right next to his had scaffolding that went up because they were doing some construction. The scaffolding extended so far that it basically blocked his doorway. And even by putting up signs and even by trying to get the neighboring guy to cooperate, and he did by putting up some signage there, it just cast such a shadow literally and figuratively over the business that it eventually had to close. And now L&W Oyster Company no longer exists on Fifth Avenue. So these are things that have quality of life impacts. They also have impacts on our general sense of safety and also the aesthetics. I mean, we can't overstate that, that the aesthetics of a city change dramatically when it goes from an open, sunny street to one with these building scaffolding. So what's the solution to this long-term explosion of these scaffolds, the fact that so many of them are up for so long? Well, to some degree, that's what we're going to talk about our next guest about. He is someone that studied this for a little while. And when we come back from the break, we'll hear from him about his ideas to this scaffold jungle. So welcome back to Keys to the City, where we try to unpack some of the problems facing New York City and try to get some solutions on the board. And we're talking about scaffolding, construction sheds, those things we all walk under and through increasingly in New York City. And one of the great things about New York is we have basically experts on a lot of different things. And I want to introduce to Keys to the City, welcome in Connor Harris. Connor, welcome. You Thank are- you. You write for City Journal, 
the Manhattan Institute. They're kind of a libertarian bent. They've been around for a long time. How did you wind up connecting with Manhattan Institute and City Journal? Well, I was a math and physics major in college, but I always had a side interest in a few different areas of urban policy and urban planning, uh, mass transportation. And after I graduated, I applied sort of on a whim to their internship program, and they liked me enough that they kept me on full time. So I've been working here for roughly five years. This morning. That's great. So in December... You jumped into this issue that probably a lot of New Yorkers look around and they see these construction sheds. You probably had the same thought. There seemed to be more of them than there had in, in years past. Some of that might be sign of progress, of a lot of construction going on. But what you found in looking into this, it's also a function of a regulatory scheme in New York that really has a lot of these getting built. Is that right? Right. Well, most of the sidewalk sheds actually have nothing to do with construction. They owe their existence to a couple of local ordinances. The most recent one is called Local Law 11 that was passed in 1998 that require building facades to be inspected every five years. And unlike many other cities' equivalent ordinances, there's no accounting for the age of the building or how much danger the materials in the building pose. Every building that's six stories or higher, unless it's set back far enough from any sidewalk or other public right of way, has to be inspected every five years. And the way you do inspections in New York is you have to drop a scaffold from the side of the building so that a qualified inspector can go up and look at all of the bricks or tiles or what have you in the building close up. And then the city also requires that if you have scaffolding over the side of the building, you also need a sidewalk shed underneath the scaffolding to make sure that if the scaffolding falls or if someone on the scaffolding drops something, it won't collide with pedestrians. That's at least the ostensible justification. Well, when you say ostensible, there is a legitimate concern that the city might have about stuff falling on people. I think a lot of this regime started with a high profile case of something falling off a building. There is at least the notion that a lot of New Yorkers probably have, okay, we don't want anything falling onto people, but these sheds, these scaffoldings often stay up for a very long time. In addition to there being a lot of them, a lot of them stay up for a very long time. Is that because it takes a while for these inspections to happen? Or is it because it takes a while for the repairs to happen? Or is it just because this is a very lucrative business and people are incentivized to figure out ways to get scaffolding sometime when they're not even needed? Well, it's mostly the second one, as you said. If the inspections find anything that they consider unsafe, and I've seen it suggested that the rules are too strict about what counts as unsafe conditions. I don't have any particular insight into that myself, but I have—I believe I have seen it suggested. The scaffolds have to stay up until city's satisfaction, the unsafe conditions have been fixed. And this can take a while for a few reasons. It's impossible to do facade repairs in winter 
a lot of old buildings are landmarked and they're essentially white elephant buildings. A lot of them are owned by nonprofit organizations like churches, for example, that can't actually afford to do the facade repairs because upholding an old building, maintaining an old building, especially one that is under a historic preservation ordinance is very expensive. And a lot of these organizations are running on very low budgets. So yes, the scaffolds are to protect first anything that happens during the inspection process. And second, if they uncover unsafe conditions, they don't want building materials from the facade falling off. And again, this is more of a risk with certain materials than other. Terracotta, especially, is a very high risk. Anything that's held in place with cement is a high risk because cement does crumble over time, whereas buildings with metal facades, for example, are much lower risk. And many cities' facade ordinances make allowances for this. They'll say if buildings are newer or if they have low risk materials, you won't have to inspect them as frequently, or you can get away with having inspections by binoculars instead of having someone look at everything close up, which takes longer and is more expensive. So you're you're jumping ahead to the keys to the city part of this. And I'm glad you are where we try to talk about the solutions. By the way, the noise in the background is my building being under construction. Apparently there's no scaffolding outside here, but hopefully they'll be able to clean up the sound quality. But so you're jumping into the, the neighborhood, which is the red meat of, of what this podcast is about. So one suggestion that you said is that maybe you have a different inspection regimen, depending upon what types of materials. Another one that you mentioned in your piece, uh, and you just alluded to it, there are ideas about using technology to make inspections more efficient. I saw you mention that as well. Tell us about that. Right. So there are a few issues here. So one is the inspection process itself. New York has every five years, no allowances for building age or building materials. Most other cities in the US, I don't know as much about outside the US, but in the US, they'll make some allowances where newer buildings, buildings with lower risk materials don't have to be inspected as often. And so I'm not sure how much of the scaffolding in New York is because of under current inspections versus because of unsafe conditions that a previous now completed inspection uncovered, but probably a decent amount is because of current inspections. I don't have exact figures. So that's one thing. And before we go any further, I should say there is this general mentality in a lot of New York City government that New York is the biggest city in the US. It's the greatest city in the world. We have lots of old buildings. No one else understands how hard it is to build or govern in New York. We have nothing to learn from anyone else. This is a very prevalent mentality, not just in building construction, in infrastructure, you see this a lot. And it means that New York politicians are often very reluctant to look at other cities in the US or elsewhere and think that maybe they have something to teach us. But of course, New York isn't the only city that has big, tall buildings that are old and might have dangerous materials. Chicago has them. Boston has them. Philadelphia has them. Overseas, London or Paris or Milan all have the same problems. We're the only ones that require these big sidewalk sheds to be put up to protect against falling building materials. And I think there's a good question. If other cities 
seem to be doing fine without the sidewalk sheds. Is there anything really that special about New York? So yeah, I think, look, that's one of the values that we we talk about on the podcast here. The idea of borrowing from lesser cities is there's no shame in that. But tell me, finally, before we wrap up, you've also described in the story that you wrote the idea of having maybe scaffolding or sheds that are more attractive, that let more light in, that this, as I described at the opening, is a quality of life problem, but it's also, it's got a criminal element to it, and there and you want to have the streets be as welcoming as possible, even when they're under construction. Are there some proposals on just having a better mousetrap when it comes to scaffolding that we have up? There are a few. So first, I want to quickly touch on your point on the last question about technology. There are proposals to use drones for inspection. The idea being that you wouldn't have to get someone to walk around the building so it could be faster. You wouldn't have to put up scaffolds during inspection and you wouldn't have to put up the sidewalk shed underneath. Again, it is solving a problem. This is also a problem that other cities have solved for a while with different methods where unless you own a high-risk building, you can just have casual inspections with binoculars, have someone stand across the street, check for any crumbling masonry from a distance. And so I, I think that before we go into drones, we should look into that. Now, as you said, more attractive sidewalk sheds. There definitely are some proposals to, there's one company, I think it's called Urban Umbrella that has made these new sidewalk sheds that are painted white. They do look a bit nicer, but the main problem with sidewalk sheds, I think, is not that they look ugly. It's that it's all the other knock-on effects. It makes it hard to see out into the street. So if you're trying to cross the street, you have to look around the sidewalk shed to make sure that there are no cars coming, or a lot of them will, you know, collect various foul liquids and start dripping them on people. Or, as you said, because there's impaired visibility, it, it, they do become magnets for certain kinds of antisocial activity, like drug dealing. There was a New York Times article back in 2014 that talked about this. So I think the solution for protecting pedestrians is something that other cities have come up with. I'm not sure if any in the U.S. do this, but in Europe, I know from someone I follow on Twitter, his name is Stephen Smith. He talks a lot about urban issues in the U.S. and, and in Europe. In Europe, a lot of buildings that have unsafe facade conditions, they'll just put some very lightweight plastic netting along the sides of the buildings. The idea being that netting will just, if anything falls out, it'll get trapped near the side of the building. So that will protect the pedestrians underneath. But because it's just a bit of lightweight plastic that sticks to the side of the building. It leaves the sidewalk completely uninterrupted. There's good visibility. It's also much cheaper to put up because you're only dealing with a few pounds of plastic rather than a couple tons of steel. That makes sense. Well, listen, we really do appreciate it, Connor, and you have done a good job at not only identifying the, the problems, but you've also given us some food for thought about the solutions to it. How can people find your story? It's at City Journal, right? Are you on social media or anything else you want to, you know, how can people reach out to you? So the best way for people to reach out to me would be my my work email, which is charris, C-H-A-R-R-I-S at manhattan-institute.org. I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at C-M-H-R-R-S, but I'm not terribly active there, but I will see your DMs if you want to DM me on Twitter. And then, of course, I do write for City Journal and a few other outlets in New York, like the Post and the Daily News on occasion. So you can see my writing there. 
Well, thank you very much, Connor. I appreciate your help with this edition of Keys to the City. And we'll be back for some final thoughts right after this break. Well, welcome back. That was an interesting conversation. I think that we understand now that the challenges that we face that Connor Harris points out, you know, it's not a sin to borrow ideas from other lesser cities. I've mentioned that here before. And scaffolding is just one idea. We'll be back next week with another problem that we're looking to solve, but more importantly, solution, the key to the city. If you'd like to participate in contributing ideas, and again, it doesn't have to be an earth-shattering one. It can just be one that affects your neighborhood. Send it over to us. We have an email address just for this purpose, keys to the city at wabcradio.com. And I'll take a look at them, or if you have comments about this episode, I also encourage you to subscribe. If you like what you're hearing here, give us a rating. That's how other people wind up hearing about this episode. And we really appreciate having you, and we'll see you next week on the next episode of Keys to the City on the Red Apple Podcast Network.